What's good, everybody? I'm John Zastrzemski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore, and you are listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you choosing this podcast. We have um, a pretty juicy one today. Uh, my old pal W. Kamau Bell um, has a docu-series that is premiering at the Sundance Film Festival this weekend and on Showtime next week. And it's called We Need to Talk About Cosby. And for all of my fans out there, you know, my response is, I haven't forgotten about you, motherfucker. <laughs> And it's kind of interesting. It's talking to really kind of the black community about how, what do you do with Cosby? Like, where does he fit? Where do you put him? You know, that type of thing. And uh, it really does kind of a thorough examination of kind of the um, phenomena of Cosby, if you will. Um, His fame, um, his importance to the black community, and how it was difficult for people to, you know, kind of deal with that how strong that persona is in the light of those horrible um accusations and as you guys know for those who are fans of mine and of the nightly show i covered that from the very beginning second episode we led with uh and tonight we will ask the question of did he do it and the answer will be yes (laughs) that's how we started our second episode on the nightly show so i covered it in real time um I'm not in the documentary, but I just thought I would mention that from the beginning. For those of you who are like, where's Larry Wilmore? How come he's not in there? I was not asked to be in it. Um, but I think it's still a very important piece of work here. I think it's uh, real fascinating. Because, um, you know, from the beginning, I was one of the black voices on television that stood up for the women immediately. Like, I needed no... <laughs> I, I did not need to... Hmm you know, he's black. Should I say anything? I'm like, no, motherfucker. You know, these stories are too real. You can't just, you can't just assault women and just because you're famous or because you're trying to hide behind black and think you can get away with it. Sorry. Not in my book. Um, that issue of this, the sexual assault for me was just too powerful as far as I'm concerned. And you know what? Hopefully there's a good that comes out of all of this. You never know. But hopefully... If you're going to find something positive, a positive might be that because so many women came out and told their stories, and it was very painful for most of them to do that, reliving some of that, and many of them were attacked for it too, you know, they personally didn't get any, you know, completion in it, if you would, you know, certainly not legally or that type of thing, or probably not even emotionally, but Maybe at the end of the day, they might have helped other women maybe in the future who, you know, will have a little more wind in their sails when it comes to telling those stories and having people believe them, you know. 
And I think the unfortunate phrase, believe all women, it's one of those, I call it an unfortunate phrase, like Black Lives Matter, because people always have an argument with it. What do you mean? So women can't lie? No, nigga, stop, stop arguing with, with slogans, please. You know, believe women means we have not believed women who have told these stories enough. Can we just fucking believe women for a change? You know, it's a longer meaning. Slogans are meant to be shorter. Black Lives Matter is like Black Lives Matter too is really what that has always meant, you know. Not only Black Lives Matter, you know, but you know, whatever. So we'll see. It was a good conversation. I had it earlier today. I hope you enjoy it. You know, um he's an interesting guy, come on, Bill. So I guess the only thing I really wanted to cover today was um I'm just thinking in my head if there's anything else, uh, what's going on this week. Well, the biggest thing, it's Biden's uh, year anniversary, I guess you could say, of when he uh, <laughs> uh, took the White House back for sanity and democracy uh, from that guy who's still trying to get his crazy ass back in the White House. Um, and thank God he did. And... It was interesting, Biden going in, you know, he he was kind of a relief president. It's like, whew, we have a human being back. Whew, you know. And it's kind of an interesting position because, like, Biden right now is fighting very low approval ratings considering, uh, yeah, I mean, he hasn't had a bad year. I think it feels worse than it really was, and we can talk about that a little bit. But he really didn't have a bad year. You know, he had an okay year, honestly, if you just look at the year president had. But I think the problem with Biden is it, it was the last election is what I call a cynical election. Um, and my definition of a cynical election, this is my own term that I've come up with. Yeah, I come up with my own terms, motherfucker. You come up with yours, too. So um, my definition of a cynical election is when you are voting against something as opposed to voting for something, primarily, you know. So and I believe the 2020 election was primarily a vote against Trump. So the vote for Biden, the winning vote, to me was a cynical vote primarily. Not all, but, you know, because people had things they wanted Biden to do for them, yes. But I think the energy that was animating that victory, let's say, was a cynical energy, meaning we are voting against that thing, <laughs> that thing that is there, that monster. We're voting against that thing. We want that thing gone, you know. Um, were like the first Obama election to me was a positive campaign. Positive campaign versus cynical campaign. Positive campaign is when you're voting for something. You're voting for a candidate. The energy that swept Obama into office, it wasn't anti-John McCain energy. It was pro-Obama motherfucking we got a nigga in the White House. <laughs> you know, finally. All right, we have a black person in the White House. Sorry. You know, uh, let's put him in now. Now is the time. Yes, yes, yes. Positive, positive energy. And interesting, the Trump campaign was a little blend, the the beating Hillary one, because there was a lot of people on the Trump side, actually, who were doing anti-Hillary votes. And she's not an incumbent, which is interesting. Anti-Hillary votes in 2016. There was a lot of the Trump campaign was very cynical. It was very anti-Hillary. And a lot of that started before Trump was even a candidate, by the way. I think a lot of it started with the Benghazi hearings 
where I believe the Republican strategy, they knew Hillary Clinton was a formidable candidate and that they needed to soften her, as you, as they say. And I think the Benghazi hear, hearings were an attempt to soften her as a candidate, to weaken the credibility of her, you know, which is unfortunate, you know. And she did well in those hearings, too, you know. But I believe that was the attempt. And I think a lot of the votes, and if you listen to people, yeah, I just really don't like Hillary. That's why I vote for Trump. It's like, fuck you, nigga. What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> how can you pick Trump over Hillary? It doesn't even make sense, you know, in picking the two. And still, when you still hear people talk about Hillary, it's so many negative terms. You know, she wasn't the perfect candidate, but Jesus Christ, you guys. I mean, I think she's a thousand times more competent than Joe Biden and, and certainly would have been in that role. From my mind, a thousand times more energetic for sure, you know, Uh, but she herself is not the best type of candidate. She doesn't candidate well. I think she serves well, but not doesn't necessarily candidate well, you know, campaign well, I guess is a better term. But you know what I mean by saying she, she doesn't candidate well, you know, it's not her her comfort zone of being in that space, you know. Well, because you are who you are, you know. Um, and she is married to arguably the best person to candidate well ever, Bill Clinton. Is there any, besides John F. Kennedy, anyone that did it better than that in terms of personality and everything? You know, Obama's pretty fucking amazing too, you know. Um, so that's what the Democrats have now, is they don't have Obama. They don't have John F. Kennedy. You know, they don't have a person... They don't have Bill Clinton. They don't have a cult of personality. They don't have somebody who they primarily voted for. Remember, um, in the um, two years ago, in the primaries, I mean, Biden got his ass kicked, you guys, if you remember that. He got his ass kicked. He got, I can't even remember. I, if, I think it was like a third and a fourth place. It was something like that, like, like right out of the bat, you know, and People thought he was done. There was no energy out in the country for a Biden election. Zero. Very little. And then Clyburn kind of, you know, gave his support to Biden ahead of South Carolina. And suddenly Biden won South Carolina and everything changed. And, you know, and the pandemic hit and everything. And it just kind of changed people's thinking and changed people's mind. You know, uh, the black vote played a huge part in that, you know. Biden to them seemed like the safe thing at that particular time. And I, I think the pandemic may have something to do with it too. I don't know how full blown it was at that point, you know, but I think that feeling of uncertainty kind of helped it. But, but having said that, Biden at that time still felt like the best way to beat Trump, right? That was the argument for Biden. It was never, look, I think Biden has the best ideas, you know, I think he, uh, I like what he says about, you know, child health care. I like what he says about climate change. Nope. There were other candidates who were had better stuff than that. Bernie Sanders, chief among them, you know, the Bernie heads, people love Bernie because of his ideas, not because they think he could beat somebody, you know, <laughs> although they would argue that he could. You know, people that loved Elizabeth Warren, they loved her energy and her fight, you know. She, you know, the way she went after, uh, you know, the um, financial scandals, you know, and all that kind of stuff. You know, she has that fighter thing, you know, and everybody had their particular candidate who kind of represented their interests and 
the candidates who kind of went away were just kind of just, you know, general, I'm for this, I'm for that. But uh, people didn't really kind of trust him, you know. But Joe Biden was not one of the top ones. He was presented as the front runner, but remember, nobody gave a shit, you know. And he just slowly went away until he came back. And it was it was a miracle. And that whole campaign was, I believe, was more people kind of painted unto Biden what they hoped he would be, you know. Yeah, he's a moderate. He's for me. Yeah, he's progressive. He's going to do this, you know. So people hoped he would do what he wanted to do. And then he gets elected and, you know, people are happy and all that because they're relieved Trump is gone. Trump is acting worse than ever with January 6th and all that stuff. You know, whew, we were proven right about this guy. Thank God. Thank you, Joe Biden. And now he starts to govern. And people are like, oh. I forgot we voted for this guy, right? Can't he at least be awake during his speeches? Jesus Christ, you know, what's going on here? Um, his own party's fighting him because they want him to be more progressive. You know, the people in the middle just aren't speaking up at all. They don't even say anything. His piece of uh, bipartisan legislation, which kind of proves the point to both sides, you know, at least from his point of view, that he wants to be the president to bring everybody together. The infrastructure bill uh, gets support from from Republicans, but not from his own party. His own party fights a signature piece of legislation because they want another piece of legislation that they know is going to get no support from the Republicans. The bill bet better. They want it attached to that and try to use a legislative trick, you know, through reconciliation you know, or whatever. They just want to use whatever they can to get that through because that's the one they really believe in. So they kind of hold the his signature bill, the infrastructure one, signature, because, you know, this is a bill that you don't need legislative tricks to do because it has full support. That's what you want to come out of the gates with and say, yep, told you motherfuckers we're getting shit done. Yep, I think president should speak like that. Bam, he could have been off and running. But uh, because, we're both, uh, because Democrats are fighting themselves, of course, um... You know, that thing doesn't get passed to December and it could have been signed in June or July. And I think it would have made a big difference if they hadn't uh, hadn't tried to do that and fought themselves and kind of weakened. Biden was weakened in that process. And one of the ways he was weakened, I think, because they never really sold any of that to the American people directly. They just kind of argued about the merits on like cable television, that type of thing, or argued against things and other sides. But um, I just think there wasn't enough time selling those things. But man, big mistake from my point of view of the Democrats fighting themselves, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, So that's where Biden is right now. You know, his biggest fight ahead is arguably with his own party and figuring out where do you stand, Joe Biden, in the things that we think you need to get accomplished. You know, are you with us or are you against us? Um, And right now he has said he's going to go out and communicate more directly with the American people instead of with senators. And I I have to kind of agree with him, you know. You got to go sell some shit, man. Go sell some shit to people. Get people to back you and believe in what you're doing and then go back to the houses with the support of the American people. But I think you risk when you do it the other way around because you don't have a cult of personality. 
you don't have the personality to win people over uh, the other way. You got to go sell that shit first, you know, and then bring that in. And, you know, the big, so the big fight within his party right now moving forward is going to be most likely a fight, a contest between pragmatism and idealism. And as we know, that is not an easy fight. You know, what can actually get done versus what should actually be done. And that's what Democrats are going to be fighting. You know, and it's not going to it's not going to go away just because we're in an election year. So um, when people are saying we should actually have free college and someone says, but we can't actually do that. <laughs> we can actually do this, you know. And people feel passionate about both sides. We'll see what's going to happen. As I said, I'm a Democrat. I'm going to hope for the best. But, you know, we'll see. I believe the three biggest issues are crime, inflation, and COVID right now for the voting electorate. That's what I believe. The people who are going to make a difference at the box office, those are the three issues. Everything else, yeah, they're important, depending on what you really care about, you know. They're pushing voting rights right now like it's the most important thing, but I don't think for most people it's the most important thing, you know. Um, I think, you know, if you put a list on it, I don't think it'd be that high. I think people would say, sure, voting rights are important, but is it in the top three of this? Nope, I don't think so. So seeing what they're going to put, uh, what basket they're going to put their eggs in is going to be interesting. And we already know the Republicans aren't going to help them at all, so I wouldn't even count on that. But um, but we'll see what happens. All right, that's all I got for now. Uh, we'll continue to cover this in the future, but right now we're going to talk about Cosby. Hey, 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 that's what I say. Welcome back. Excited to have on once again, you know him from CNN's United Shades of America, interviewing everybody in America. Every single person in America is his goal. Yes. <laughs> but he has a very arresting documentary that's premiering at the Sundance Film Festival, and it's going to be premiering on the Showtime uh, Network. It's a four-part docuseries called We Need to Talk About Cosby, and he is not wrong. And I will say to my fans, I haven't forgotten about you, motherfucker. People that know that I've been going after Cosby for years. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Kamau Bell, welcome to Black on the Air, man. Thank you. Yeah, welcome back. Welcome Black, right? Welcome Black. Welcome back. Nice to have yeah. you on. We, I had a lot of fun talking to you the last time. Um, yeah, let's let's finish talking about defund the police. I got more things to say. <laughs> was I wrong? Though? <laughs> I don't think I was wrong on that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go. Let's do one controversial subject at a time. Exactly. But you know me. We can talk about whatever you want. You know. But this is. Uh, I you know want to give you just props right off the bat. I mean. It seems like a straightforward topic, but it really isn't. There's so many layers to the whole Cosby thing. And the angle that you're coming in on, we need to talk about Cosby, is kind of an interesting angle. Tell us about how this started. What uh, what was the itch of you wanting to need to do this documentary? I mean, I think that itch is in all, probably all black comedians who are of the generation who followed him, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all sort of had this whole... Many of us, maybe certain, maybe some, maybe the generation right after him understood some of this stuff. But like 
for my generation, like I grew up, I don't remember a time in my life where Bill Cosby wasn't a part of the wallpaper of black America. My first intro was Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. And he, I didn't understand at the time that he was essential to the show. I just like, oh, I like this guy who hosts this cartoon I like, you know? Right. But I also understood that this guy seems to want me to do good and learn and be a good person and, and respect my neighborhood and be a good community member. Oh, great. And the show is entertaining. Mm -hmm. And then I think my next, I don't think I ever understood Cosby as a stand-up until I saw Bill Cosby himself, because I, I mm -hmm. was too young to, to I, I, I wasn't around when the classic albums came out, my mom didn't have them. Right. But right. Uh, Bill Cosby himself. And you kind of miss, you were too young to miss those movies too, like Piece of the Action, Uptown Saturday Night, to see even that version of Cosby, right? Yeah. It, for me, Cosby was just a guy who was on kids' television. Like, he was like right. uh, Fat Albert. Picture Pages, The Electric Company. He was just the guy who was sort of like ubiquitous on kids' television. Sure. But still, and not playing, he always was Bill, sort of carried the Bill Cosby ethos with him wherever he went. Always cared about me, wanted me to do well. Interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah so it was like, and so yeah. then I think, you know. He was a respected figure yes. who was seen mature to you. He was giving you advice. He felt like the way your teachers were, your parents, or, mm -hmm. or your parents' friends who would come yeah. over and give you advice. That type of feel almost. Yeah, like the way, like we, yeah. uh, uh, Todd Boyd, who's in the film, described him as like like the cool uncle at that point. Right, like he wasn't right, a dad; right. he was like your your dad's younger brother. You know? Right, not the uncle who was smoking weed in the attic. No, no, right? no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the uncle who gave you books for Christmas and you resented them, but then later you read them. Right, and he would secretly smoke weed when no one was around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was smoking weed, but he just he just he knew enough not to do it around you. you know? Exactly, exactly. You know, and then I think as a young kid who was loving already like at a very young age, loving Saturday Night Live, starting to fall, mm -hmm. starting to understand what stand-up comedy was. I think when I saw like my one of my first trips to a video store, saw this thing called Bill Cosby himself, that's mm -hmm. the first time I understood him as a stand-up comedian. You mm -hmm. know, so and that's and mm -hmm. renting that, even at my young age, which I was like, I don't know, 10, I don't know, like super young, mm -hmm. I was like, this is better than the other stand-up comedy I've seen. Interesting. So, and you really enjoyed it, even though here's a person who's speaking from a father's point of view. As a kid, you really enjoyed that. It was just funny to you, right? He was speaking from a father's point of view at that point. But, you know, I had a dad. <laughs> so, like, it wasn't like... Right, 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 right. And he was funnier than my dad. And, you know, he was... Right, right, know. right. And I think he's also... The thing that I really recognized about Bukowski himself is that, even from an early age, is that a lot of comics go on stage... At that, I would sort of and, and sort of pretend to be dumber than they are, mm, you know. Sort of take a little bit of a like, oh, I don't know what's going on, you know. Like, and I'm not even that's not that's not a judgment. It's just that they they take a character because a lot of humor comes from I don't understand things. Right. Bill Cosby's whole perspective was like, I'm smarter than everybody, but people keep getting in my way, basically. Like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which maybe that also leads to some him off stage too. But like, yeah, that's interesting. It's not about like him putting himself down for the joke. It's not about him. You know, but he also could be silly. So it's not like he just stood up there and like lectured. He could yeah. be silly. I mean, you know, and he was frustrated too. Like dealing with those kids was a comic frustration behind it. Yeah, and maybe his kids occasionally got one over on him. But he also he also enjoyed it when they ate chocolate cake. You know what I mean? It wasn't like he was like exactly. He was sort of like reveling in the fact that they got one over on him. But you know, and it was just like also if you look at it, just he he. I mean, I, I will never forget. Like I think it was a big deal. Just he's just sitting in a chair. Yeah. Like that it just seemed like th that's not what stand up comics do. It's in the name, mm -hmm. you know. And so I think there were so many things that made it, that set it apart that it really sort of got into me as like, oh, that's what stand up comedy is. That's it. Yeah. That's stand up comedy. And it, you know, and Richard Pryor was also in his heyday, but that I was too young and it was You were too young for Pryor to appreciate that. Cuz I'm 
I'm older than you, so I had a different experience of Cosby at that point. That's what I'm finding out about this, is that everybody has a different experience. The generational part, you're right in the pocket of Cosby being able to trick you the most, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, gonna... <laughs> that's exactly yeah, that's, I never thought of it, but that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes, because he's going to have the most influence over your generation in the time period you are, because now I'll go back to where my experience was. So I first experienced Cosby and I Spy. Yeah. And even though I was really young, you know, I was watching shows like Man From U.N.C.L.E., you know, and things yes. like that. You know, these cool spy things. Get Smart was like the funniest thing to me. You know, they were making fun of spies. And then to see Bill Cosby, wait, what is this black person doing on TV? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it was amazing. Even my young brain knew that that was different. We didn't do that. You know, yes, and he was yeah. it was just different, you know, and. And then Fat Albert was so different from that and yeah. everything. And we loved Fat Albert, you know, all mm -hmm. the kids and everything. But yeah. Cosby was big already. And, yeah. of course, his albums, which in my – when I was young, they would play that stuff on the radio a lot, too. Wow. So you didn't even have to have the albums. Yeah. Because my parents really didn't buy comedy albums. Yeah. And, I, you know, I didn't have any money. But I would – I could remember – at night hearing, you know, his thing about the monsters and getting under the covers. And I didn't even know who he was when I first heard his albums. For sure. And I was like, who's this? What is this chicken heart thing? Who is this guy? <laughs> like, you know, yeah, yeah, this yeah. stuff is, it was the funniest stuff, but I didn't even connect it to him that much. He was, he was just kind of around me when he was happening and just became big. And by the time the Bill Cosby show came on, not the Cosby show later, but he had a show called the Bill Cosby show. Chet Kincaid. Chet Kincaid. Like, we thought he was the coolest dude on television. Yeah. Uh, where he was the PE teacher and all of that stuff. Yeah. I'm going to get some rackets and some rolls and some grease advisors. Ha, 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 ha. Like, <laughs> Hickey Burr. Yeah, the whole end of the Bill Cosby show, uh, I think it might have been Quincy Jones. Yep. Who loved? You know, like that thing. So that was Cosby to me, yeah. in my yeah. mind, yeah. was that cool figure, you know. Yeah. So I was already, I had my Cosby meal by the time that himself came around. I was like, oh, yeah, Cosby's doing another video. <laughs> no, for me, it was like, oh, he does stand up too? Like, he's trying to keep up with Richard Pryor was where I was coming from by that point. Like, Pryor, Pryor already showed the way yeah, of the yeah, future. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Bill Cosby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of interesting where we were at that point. The black people of my generation, we hadn't necessarily moved on from Cosby, but there was already an evolution past that. Mm -hmm. You know, but we appreciated him, I guess you could say. You know? And I and we addressed that in the film that I think that some of himself was him sort of like reclaiming his place. Like, I think, he, you know, we sort of addressed the fact that like stand up comedy had moved on from him. Like, even if he was winning Grammys, he wasn't as relevant as he had been. He wasn't as relevant. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, because as big as himself was, it was very popular. But it, it didn't have the relevance of Eddie Murphy's thing at the same time as Delirious was much more relevant at the time. You know, they came out at around the same time. They did. I, I wrote in Time Magazine this week. I think the among the first videotapes I read from the video store was Bill Cosby himself and Eddie Murphy Delirious. Yeah. And there's a difference between and to me growing up, I felt like those were the two opposite ends of black comedy. It couldn't get more opposite. Yeah. And I felt like I love both of these. You know what I mean? Yes. Like equally. Exactly. Like. I'm, I can't be Eddie Murphy. And at the time you go, I feel like more, I feel like I relate more to Bill Cosby. And then the Cosby show comes out and you go, yeah, that's the, that's where I would, that's where I would live literally. <laughs> you know, it's like, I yeah. can't, Eddie Murphy's, Eddie Murphy's a rock star. I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, I love it, but I don't know what it is. That's true. Yeah, that's so true. But Bill Cosby is like, I could walk into the Cosby show house and be like, and just sit down and feel like, and, and just be another member of the cast. You know, it's how I felt. Well, I think what, what's really effective about this film, and I appreciate that you did this 
was taking people through the timeline of his success because part of what your premise is, which I imagine is why is it so difficult for people to have this conversation? They need to know the context of the relationship. Sure, sure. Right? Not that he was just famous, but what did he mean to black people? Like how important that was. And to get people to experience it. And then at the same time, and I want to ask you about this, of going back and with their timeline, and this was very powerful, Kamau, showing the sexual assaults happening in those times. You know, when did that concept come to you of the way to tell this story? It's funny. I, I haven't brought this film into it. I think we had the idea and then the last dance happened and it was all about like wow. trying to keep track of the time of, of what because and I understood the last dance did it for a very specific reason. Michael Jordan in 1991 doesn't look substantially different than Michael Jordan in 1996. But those are two different eras of Michael Jordan, you know, like, so like Completely. you have to sort of let people know that. And if you're a sports fan, I can tell the difference. Like I can go, that's young Michael and that's slightly older Michael. Or if you're a Bulls fan the way I, I was at that point. But if you're just a person watching this thing about a cultural figure that and I talked to people about it, we were working on production on this while we were doing it. We were Last Dance came out while we were in production for this and everybody watched it because we're all in documentary. And there was people who were like, I didn't know any of this and how comp how sort of convoluted Michael Jordan's story was about leaving the team, coming back to the team. And so we and I was like, and I felt like that timeline in the last dance really helped you sort of like for for noobs, as they say, to keep track of where of which Michael Jordan you were looking at. And for the rest of us going like when you see the timeline go back to 1997, I'm like, I know where we're going. Like it sort of helps you as an audience. For if you if you know, you get excited for what you're about to see. You know what I mean? And if you're new, you're like, it helps you keep track of the story. And so we weren't using it necessarily in that way. If you tell the story like the way it happened and you sort of say the assaults as they happen, it's going to be hard to take it all. It's going to be like hard to change tones that quickly. And also yeah. you do want to do the thing that Bill Cosby did. You kind of want to reel the audience in to his level of like, comfort and maybe discomfort like is this just going to be a, a did this negro trick me into a celebration of bill cosby or yay it's just a celebration of bill cosby and then in episode one is where we really feel like when do we let people know what we're what we're really doing here and i think that is important because cosby is so complicated not just because he was funny but because he was relevant and he was relevant in many different ways and yeah. there was something that i didn't really know about was the whole stuntman thing do you want to talk about that a little bit? That was the story that, like, when after Hannibal's joke and women started coming out saying that they had been assaulted by him, and then that story came, I think it was in Deadline, about Noni Robinson, who's a black woman documentary filmmaker, who was making a film about black stunt performers, because her, her, uh, one of the members of her family was a stunt performer, a black stunt performer, and how Bill Cosby single-handedly was the guy who basically, like, said he was the Rosa Parks of the stunt industry, like, pre that time and still afterwards apparently still if a if a black person needed a stunt performer they would take a white stunt man and literally paint him black not paint him the not match the color to the black person they would paint Crazy. him black to do the stunt and for women they would just put a wig on the on the male stunt performers and paint them black if it was like Gloria Hendry a black person so the idea being that like Cosby was apparently early days of I spy saw this happening it was like I refuse to work if you don't give me a black stunt performer. And everybody traces that to be the moment that changed the black industry for black stunt performers. And I read this article in the midst of all the uh, accusations and all the headlines and I was, and I saw that she had interviewed Cosby for two hours and the, and she realized she had to pull him out of the documentary because of the fact of all these allegations. And then the documentary, I don't think still has seen the light of day. And I was like, if we don't tell that story, 
we're losing history. Yeah, very important. I'm so happy that you did because it it makes it more complicated in a way that it needs to be more complicated. Yes, I think yes. you know because once again, this is the thing that is making it difficult for people, you know, to believe these things. You know, the other thing was the two pillars of Cosby's journey. You know, he like starts at. Not even woke, but bespoke, as they say. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> right. Yes, I mean that special that you show. I saw that. Uh, I only saw it like maybe five or six years ago, or yeah. something like that. Or two. It was on YouTube. I like. What is this thing? I don't remember yeah. this. Probably on the uh, Michael Michael Dennis Real Black channel on YouTube is a guy who has who has that up there. Yeah, where Cosby is, he's keeping it one hundred percent real about black history and that type of thing in 1968 this is when you know we just lost martin luther king and these riots were happening and rather than him out there saying hey black people calm down he's like no white motherfuckers you need to know you poured the gasoline on this shit and let me tell you about what's really happening yes your head will explode when you see that version of cosby right yes when you think about the cosby in 2004 who is the opposite of that who's blaming yes. black people the complete opposite yes yeah no that that's again more footage as we started as i started looking into this even before it was a series or had been fully like we decided that we were going to do it because let me be clear I'm just a black comedian, as you said, born into the heart of that part of, of the respectable part of Cosby's career and the part where he's really attaching, he's going, he's connecting with children. I'm just trying to figure this out for myself. Mm-hmm. And so, and once you start like watching clips, YouTube's like, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And so way before it's even a project, it's just me like going, lost, stolen, and strayed. What is this? I'd never seen it before. Mm-hmm. This, again, makes the story more complicated. And then you see clips from the Cosby show about, about barbecue sauce making everybody huggy-buggy, and you're like, what is this? And then you go, and the, the more you dig into it, the more complicated and layered the story gets, and the more you're like, some people have seen all of this, but most people haven't seen all of it. And put it all in context in one place. And what's interesting about this, too, is Cosby kind of tells us who he is at many, many points of his career. And it kind of starts very early on. And this one I had heard of because when I was a kid, this was just a thing that people said, the Spanish fly thing. I remember the ads in magazines and then yeah. get Spanish fly and she yeah. won't say you no, know, you know, yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. It's like, what is this? And Cosby did a whole routine about Spanish fly, but he's talking about it as an adult, yes. You, know? Yes. you know, which is weird. Like talking about it as a kid and you don't know what that is, is one yeah. thing, but he's talking about it as an adult, which kind of is the first indication of, mm. and it's, and I think we really tried to say also, let's not separate the man from his time. Like, that kind of talk is more prevalent and and what and i yes. say in there what is regarded as family friendly doesn't always hold through time so like and the idea being that like at that point it was just a guy as a right. clean comic telling right. a clean joke and because he's not you know it, there's no yeah yeah it's maybe a little bit oh that's yeah. a little racy but it's not thought of as like this dude's talking about rape and you then when you look at like the section of like the document where we took a look at the times that this was happening in my favorite clip piece of archival is sean connery taking a woman, turning her away, slapping her on the ass and says, man talk. And I'm like, that's the hero of the movie right there, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Exactly. That was Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's the beginning of Goldfinger. And I think a lot of people who are are already mad at me on social media who haven't seen it are are assuming... People are mad at you? I don't know. (laughs) Oh, wow. Are you surprised? Are you surprised, (laughs) 
I, it's amazing to me. I, well, like, no, they haven't. They maybe have, five, maybe five years ago, they would have been managed. No, nope, nope. There are people. There's a, if you go, go to my Instagram, just hang out for a while, and you know you'll see that like there's a there's a percentage of people of black people or people who are representing themselves as black in social media. Who knows who mm-hmm. who who? It's this weird thing of like even if they accept that he did these things. We should. Why are we focusing on this black man when all these white guys also do these things? Why is the Why yeah. is the black man tearing the black man down? Why don't you go do a thing about yeah. Harvey Weinstein? And I'm like, they already did things about Harvey Weinstein. And also, well, why are you Gail Kinging this? Why are you whatever? Yeah, and, and for me, it's like this is no. I, I don't know if this is cra- is weird to say, but I didn't grow up with Harvey Weinstein as my hero. Mm. So let's go back to that. So we you watch himself. And you're like, this guy is funny. But then the Cosby show comes on and a whole new thing. I mean, he gets catapulted into an arena that I don't even think he could have anticipated. He becomes like one of those people who is like one of the symbols of America's greatness. Like, you know, like, you know, that like, and also a symbol of being post-racial at a time when we were really not like a symbol of like, if he made it, then everybody else must be okay. It was the most popular show in South Africa during that time, while Mandela was still in yep, prison. Yep, yep. There. And that yeah. South Africa thought it was sort of like race neutral because it was like blacks and whites living together, and yet it was like black people in South Africa were like, "This is actually revolutionary." <laughs> like, you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah. I mean, I think that like, and we talk about that like it got the ratings of a bad Super Bowl. Sixty-five million people, I think, watched the most watched episode, and like, it's crazy. There's nothing on TV right now <sighs> that's getting close to that. Like, it was appointment television. And black people, mm-hmm. it was appointment television for black people, and then it becomes appointment television for white people. But we're we're getting two things, two different things out of it. Some white people who I've talked to are like, I just enjoyed it. It was just a good family sitcom. And black people are sitting there going, "That's black art on the on the wall back there. Mm-hmm. That's Betty Carter. Right. That's uh, you know, that's you know, Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, that they're playing jazz. Mm-hmm. This is like that. We're like yep. dissecting it. Oh, that's a picture of Nelson of uh of Nelson Mandela on the wall. Yep. He's got a Tuskegee uh, sweater. And we're like seeing it because we're like going, this dude, it's like a Trojan horse for black excellence. And then there's clips that are just like separate from that, which we dug it that clip. Nighttime is the right time. Like that, mm-hmm. that clip is like the moon landing to me. You know what I mean? I don't remember. Like I was like that clip stayed with me from the moment I saw it till today with the family all lip syncing the Ray Charles song for the grandparents. Like, and we, and the thing we do in the film, which you saw is like, we play it for people. So you can see even people who, who believe that Bill Cosby did these assaults and raped these women still connect to who they were when they saw that clip. Yeah. It's kind of sad watching it, you know? Sure. I had really mixed emotions because the Cosby show is funny. When that came on, I, I was doing stand up already at that time. So I didn't, I wasn't at home watching TV really during that era. So yeah. I was kind of aware of the Cosby Show, and I had watched a little bit of the first season, but I really wasn't a yeah. a fervent watcher over it. And I already had a bit of a bad taste in my mouth because my mom had met Cosby at this tennis tournament like a few years earlier in San Diego with her friend, and they, you know, huge Cosby fans, and they just politely asked the kid of us autograph. He says, "I don't come here to sign things," you know, yeah, he said yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> like. What was interesting about it, he didn't just say, "No, I'm tired" or whatever. It's like he was a different person. Yes. Yes. And when my mom told that story to him, I'm like, wow, that's so nasty. That doesn't sound like Jello Pudding Pop guy. And it always stuck with me that he could just be so just instantly nasty. Yeah, yeah. And when I first heard these allegations, it made sense to me that there could be a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on with him because of the experience my mom told me way before the Cosby show was on. That, yeah. You know, there's two sides of this guy. He's he's pretty nasty to people. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that's what... That's what the other thing we do is we start to reveal some of these stories that like that that they're all happening in these silos. 
Yes. Like Annette John Hall, who's a reporter from Philadelphia, talks about how in the fourth episode, how Cosby would regularly call newspaper reporters and basically threaten their jobs and demand retractions if he wasn't happy at articles. Amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, the Mark Lamont Hill story where he's like when he was a mm. young professor at Temple and just wrote about how he disagreed with Cosby's pound cake speech that Cosby called his dean and call and and the dean then called Mark into the office and said, why are you? Why are you attacking Mr. Cosby when it's like, I'm just disagreeing with him, you know, and that, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mark tells a great story about Cosby, (laughs) about Cosby saying when he he tries to talk to Cosby, when Cosby comes to Temple and Cosby puts on his sunglasses and looks at him and says, "Uh, am I fucking with you? (laughs) No, Mr. Cosby. Then why are you fucking with me? It's like he's like, in an episode of Breaking Bad all of a sudden. Exactly. You know? Like, yeah, like it's like and all these episodes of like all these different like sort of siloed experiences. Yeah. Everybody's going, it's weird. I had this one negative experience with Bill Cosby. Yeah. Like everybody, yeah. his the power of his legend is so big. A lot of these things aren't being connected. And so like even the survivors in the doc, they think they ha- they are the one person who got raped by Bill Cosby. So. I should just I should just deal with it myself because I've been told he's too big and powerful. Mm. Everybody loves him. Been, they've been told that by cops, by family members. He has also, in some cases, befriended their family members. So then their family members are like, I don't like I don't believe you, Bill Cosby. So nice to mm. us. Like everybody's sort of holding these what they think are individual experiences, bad experiences with Bill Cosby, and then post Hannibal, they all get added together, and everybody starts sharing these stories. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. I think there are a couple of turning points in the... Let's call it the black protectionism, because I think you kind of use a term like that. That's yeah, uh, Jamel. Jamel Hill uses that term. Black protectionism gone wrong. Yes. OK, I think it's an interesting term because she's not Jamel's not wrong with that, because I think Cosby had this protectionism going for him. But it started to crack apart a little, starting with the um, pound cake speech, you know, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that. Because you even pointed out, like, black people were completely willing to defend O.J. Simpson, but it started cracking a little with the, well, I'm not really black when they were hearing stuff like that. <laughs> when he was like, why are you knocking us? You know, I don't know if we yeah, can yeah, go yeah, and support yeah. you now. You know? Because it's funny how black people as a group, they'll go all in on something. But as soon as it starts, like, if you start cracking that apart, you're like, beware, you know, yeah. uh, because... I think without that support, I think he became vulnerable. So let's talk about that speech. What do you remember about that pound cake speech? What tell the audience what that was and when it happened and everything? Because Cosby has this is the, that the end of that pillar we're talking about. We've made this is like the early aughts, right? Yeah, this is two thousand and four. So this also let's let's you know put it in context. The Cosby Show goes off the air in two thousand in nineteen ninety two. Right, so he's no longer on a regular show. Yeah, he's he's on a lot of shows regularly. He's got a bunch of different. He's got a bunch of different pilot deals at CBS that are on that stay on for like the Cosby Show he did with Felicia Rashad and Dougie Doug stayed on for like four or five years. That's right. Yeah, and he's had he's got the Cosby Mysteries. Right, the Cosby Mysteries. He's got the Groucho Marx Show. You bet your life. He's got Kids Say the Darndest Things. Like he's got a lot of shows 
but none of them is approaches anything to the Cosby show. So for most of us, like again, and I'm an I'm an adult at this point. I'm I'm sort of I'm ignoring him, but every day he still shows up on on talk show just because I'm like I'm a comic trying to make it happen. I'm like you know I'm I've moved on. I like you like you in the in the eighties. I was like I you know yeah you're doing your thing now, All right? I'm doing my thing. He still is showing up on talk shows every now and again as Bill Cosby, like because every talk show host right. loves him and they grew yes. up idolizing him. So he goes on these shows and he can just sort of he can sort of just sort of flop around and everybody's like yeah so he still mm-hmm. holds a special spot but he's not as relevant and he's also and you sort of feel like all right well he'll just fade into the he'll fade into the end of his career and we will and when he gets the last when he dies we'll just be like this you know it, just, it doesn't have to do much but there's a thing about Cosby throughout his career that he really always wants to find relevancy like there's a thing where he really wants the spotlight and I think we talk about if you look at his career in the 70s he is like a, it's a full frontal attack on show business it's mm-hmm. it's primetime TV, it's kids television, it's yeah. PBS, it's movies, it's records, it's jazz records. Like it is a full front. He's trying. He's like some of this shit's gonna land. You know, it's big budget movies, it's indie movies. Like you know, so it's like he's really doing everything. And so 2004, he's invited to give a speech for the NAACP at the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. You know, wow. okay. and it's and and. And it's supposed to be a celebration of this landmark Supreme Court case. Apparently, this is how it was how it was going to go down. So he goes up, and and this is I'm quoting uh, J- uh, Jelani Cobb, and delivers a harangue, like mm-hmm. a black people have not lived up to the promises of the of Brown versus Board of Education. Like people mm-hmm. are expecting him to go up and sort of be America's dad, and sort of and sort of tell some jokes and talk about how proud he is of us. And he goes up and proceeds to go through all the things black people are doing wrong, and in many ways blaming black moms for not mm. doing enough for their kids. And one of the, and, and, and he also makes fun of all the names that were given black people now. And one of the names he actually uses is Muhammad, which is like, you know, mm. so, and he, when the famous, then why it's called the pound cake speech is because he talks about some black, young black man stealing a piece of pound cake and getting shot in the back by the police. And people want to blame the police. And Cosby says, but what was he doing with the pound cake in his hand? <laughs> If, if you're stealing one piece of pound cake, like you, you probably were hungry and didn't have money to pay for it. You and know? what would the actual sentence for that be? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and 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 we and the thing is, it sounds ridiculous, but we could all see that happening: a cop shooting a guy for stealing a black man for shooting a piece of pound cake. Thousand percent. And so thousand percent. And it becomes a thing that is like the you know this is the first mm. time I heard the phrase respectability politics, which is about like a type of black politic that says black people have enough to be able to lift up lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps and if you're not doing that then it's your fault and so that speech this is 2004 the internet is around but it ain't around like it is now but it basically is one of the things where like it goes viral and it's recorded and so clips start to come out they start to play these clips on the news he ends up going on mm. oprah and oprah talks to him about it and, and didn't he have a book at the time i think it's called come on people yeah right, right, right. turns it into a new part of his career like he starts to make this his new thing he's going around telling people black people to lift themselves up and do better and it's really it's not even so much that it's a new message it's just the quality of the message is so coarse it's not the bill cosby we fell in love with and it feels like why is our hero hating on us i think the the nasty part of him was seeping through in this you know Mm -hmm. uh because you're right we've black people have heard that message before in different ways you know it's been delivered but not as this 
just strict tome of you're the bad person in this, you know. There's no love in it. Yeah, it had that nasty part of him. It's really reductive in a way. It is. As a subject, it's not different than Chris Rock's Black People versus Niggers. Now, we can look back on that now and go, I don't know if we would say, and Chris would say, I don't know if I'd say that the same way now. Yeah, that was brilliant at least. Yeah. But the way Chris did it was like, you could feel his love for the community in there. It wasn't about like, I'm leaving exactly. these people behind. It was about, I'm frustrated. And Chris made a distinction. Yes, you know, yes, yes. He didn't just say, it's that all of us are niggas. Yeah. Right? And I think the other thing that sort of, it, it's the first time it puts a split in the black community about thinking about Bill Cosby. Because some black folks like that. They like respectability politics. They do think that yes. that, that uh, if a black guy gets shot by a cop for stealing pound cake, he shouldn't have stole the pound cake. So there's a whole, it sort of, it breaks, it breaks the black community into teams about Bill Cosby. And in some sense, mm-hmm. once the allegations come out, those teams still exist in many senses. Right. And I always say you know, there's nothing wrong with having those discussions, but I'm fascinated by the schisms themselves, you know, mm-hmm. and how they exist. And, and I think the even more uh, to me, what was even worse than the pound cake speech to me was his address to Spelman College, because he's talking to people who are doing something positive already. Yes. They're, they're not, these aren't the people whose pants are down, like Mm-mm. he says, and Mm-mm. and her talking to they're edu they are in the process of educating themselves if they have educated themselves because they're graduating yeah they're about they're, to gra- they're graduating yeah yes they're starting a life based on positive structure like that's the place to do an inspirational message but he chose to do a the cutting down message to that group yes and that's the thing i think you see is that it becomes his new in the same way that bill, in bill cosby himself he positioned himself for the cosby show that I, yes. That uh, NAACP speech, he positions himself to be, uh, is, instead of America's dad, black America's angry grandfather. And what's interesting about this is, I don't know if Cosby's brought down without this happening. Because that is a direct line to the Hannibal Burris moment. For sure. You know, of of the Cosby lecturing black people type mm-hmm, of thing mm-hmm, and feeling yeah. lectured by this old man. Because Eddie Murphy talked about it back in the 80s, but when Eddie Murphy talked about it, it was a personal thing. He was just lecturing him personally. Yeah. But Eddie was giving us a preview yes. of, you know, of what was to come, basically, for everybody. He was going to get on the phone and call all of Black America uh. <laughs> and, have, and have the Eddie Murphy conversation. Yes. Like you talked about, like, we're, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. Hannibal's younger than me. So he's not really coming up under the Bill Cosby. He's he's too young to have been. Oh, like, he doesn't have that magic. He doesn't, that have, the, you he doesn't had, have Fat right. Albert. He doesn't. He, I'm sure he saw Bill Cosby, uh, the Cosby Show, in reruns, but it wasn't like as it was airing. Uh. So I think Hannibal has less patience for it as a younger black man. Right. See, that's what's interesting too. Those are the sites. Those are the generations that I find fascinating. You know, me yeah. who kind of dismissed them before the Cosby Show. You're caught up in the in the myth of it. It not it's not your fault. That's your generation. I was there for the rocket to launch. Yeah, also yeah, yeah. and then <laughs> the post Cosby's like, what's this nigga talking about? It's so interesting exactly. to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so interesting. You know, all the different factions. You know, of that, and it's funny that it took that to crack it open for everybody. You want to talk about that moment a little bit? And, and what was your? Did you have? Uh, do you, are you a friend of Hannibal's? Do you know Hannibal? Or? We're friendly. I mean, I hope after this comes out, we're still friendly. I mean, I, you know, I just, I just, I respect him. And I, I mean, literally, the 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 night, one of the nicest things anybody ever did for me was after my first daughter was born. I got a case of diapers, like a like a comically giant case of newborn diapers, in from like in the mail. 
And I was like, who sent this? And it was from Hannibal. And we're <laughs> not even funny. like That's close nice. like that, but it was just Hannibal like doing a nice thing. So, I mean, I, you know, Hannibal, yeah. I've, and I really, when we were crafting the Hannibal section, I was really trying to be like, we have to talk about this. I want to talk about this, but I'm giving him, I don't want to make it, I want to give him space in this, you know? Oh, I thought it was fine. Yeah. I don't well, think anything you. bad about Hannibal. I mean, that that's exactly what happened. So uh, Hannibal Burst is performing. In, I mean, this is like a perfect storm. Is performing stand up Philadelphia at some at some nightclub, not a giant arena. Twenty fourteen, YouTube existed, but we weren't watching Cobra Kai on it. Like it was just like a, it was just the thing where people were uploading. Not there wasn't it wasn't a content yeah. site like it is now. So so he apparently starts talking about Bill Cosby and some. Body in the back who worked, I believe, for the Philadelphia Inquirer, pulls out their cell phone because it's he's Hannibal's in Philadelphia talking about Bill Cosby, and it is the most sort of comically grainy cell phone footage ever. And Hannibal starts to talk about how he's upset at the hypocrisy of Bill Cosby. How and it's and the funny thing is, it's not a bit; it's more of a mm. like a rant that has some punchlines. You know, uh, it's not a it's not like he and as a comic, I can tell like this is not a fully formed bit. This is not like my yeah. my new closer. This is just like. I'm working some stuff out. Yeah. I'm in Philly. I feel like I want to say this, you know. The the bit is in junior high right now. It's not even in high school. No, 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 no. And, I, and Hannibal, yeah. we have <laughs> yeah, a clip yeah, in there. Yeah. He says it was. He's on a Sway in the Morning show. He's like, it wasn't even a fully formed bit. Like it was like not like right, right. You know. So yeah, yeah. I, I was just riffing. Yeah, and so he's he's basically calling Bill Cosby out for being a hypocrite. Like, why are you telling right. me to pull my pants up when you're out here raping women? Mm. And you can feel the crowd go. Oh, 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 oh. It's like. There's laughs, but there's also this like, what? And then he's like, you know, if you don't believe me, and this is the part, it's, again, it's, it's sometimes comics don't say punchlines. They just say the truth and it hits you in a way that is funny. If you don't believe me, mm -hmm. go home and Google Bill Cosby rape. There's more results for that mm -hmm. than Hannibal Burris. Right. And it's like, and basically everybody goes home. And then the reporter takes that footage, puts it up on the internet. It gets, it gets shared around the world. And we all go home and Google Bill Cosby rape. But this is what's fascinating to me. It's like he had been accused of rape publicly already. And mm -hmm. we even show a clip from the Today Show that was years earlier, yeah. you know, because the Andrea Costan thing made the news and all that. But it just went away. Andrea Costan was 2004. Yeah, 2004. Like in the same era that the pound cake speech just happened, there is Andrea Costan's allegation comes forward. And it's public and people hear about it, but it's like, eh, it just goes by. Well, it's also such a different area of media. Like yeah. you don't open up your phone and have your phone tell you what the important news stories of the day are. So if you're not watching... Like the Cosby story, if you're not watching the Today Show, right, you, you might, don't see it. That's true. You might miss it. If you're not watching the evening news, you don't see it. And also, the way they report Cosby said these things about black people, for them, that's a bigger story. A more, if it bleeds, it leads story. Right. Then a celebrity's got a rape allegation. So it's the way in which even the media is reporting it. What makes it interesting is Hannibal Burris didn't do a bit that Cosby was a rapist. He did a bit that Cosby was a hypocrite. Yes. You know, it's hypocrisy was made it go viral, not the rapist. Yeah, the, that's, the hypocrisy was the engine of the joke. It was the how dare you, how dare you do this when it's this. Not He didn't say, how dare you be a rapist. He said, how dare you act like this and you are a rapist. So the bit was about hypocrisy, not about rape, which is interesting. Which is what, but it sort of feeds what you said earlier about the fact that like if Cosby hadn't been a hypocrite, maybe if Hannibal does the joke, but it's just about Bill Cosby's a rapist and that's the joke. It's not about him. He, I mean, there's still some hypocrisy because Bill Cosby's America's dad. There's still, but right. Hannibal was specifically mad about the black hypocrisy. Exactly. That's the thing yeah. that gets me. Without yeah. that, I don't think it goes viral. I don't think it's a thing. Yeah. If he's just yeah. says, oh, Bill, 
Oh, did you guys know Bill Cosby was a rapist? People are like, ooh, stop it. What? I'm just telling you. Yeah. Just Google it. Look it up. You yeah, know, Google, yeah. Nobody would have taken yes. that. But that nigga's telling me to pull up my pants where, in the meantime, he's pulling down pants everywhere, you know. See, that yeah, would have been the yeah. next the next yeah, part that would, right? yeah that would, the bit, be, i don't think i think hannibal retired that bit that night i'm, I'm 90 <laughs> yes sure. because he unfortunately got in the spotlight immediately too and I, he probably didn't want that for that the one thing hannibal's been clear about is like i don't want this you know bill cosby has taken like like took the pound cake speech and turned into a career move hannibal did not want to turn it into a career move yeah did he feel guilty i don't think he felt guilty because i think he was like i think the bit was also about like how come we don't all know this how come we're not all talking yeah. about this? It's like, it's like, because it, he's like, it's on Google. Like, it's like, he's not, so I don't think he. Did people come at Hannibal after that at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that, I, as somebody who was friends with Hannibal and sort of watching and sort of watching and going like, Hannibal wants no part of this. A lot of black, a lot of black folks, a mm-hmm. lot of black media came, you know, th- you know, there was a sort of a like this and I'm experiencing this now. Oh, the white man has found a black man to take a black man down. Mm-hmm. They send they sent a black man to take Cosby down. And also, Hannibal came from like the New York alt scene. He did not come out of the out of the black out of the black clubs. So there's also who is this motherfucker, which I'm also experiencing right now. Who is this motherfucker? Because I also didn't come out of the black clubs. So right. I think there's a little bit like, but I think that's also why it sort of went viral because it was like it came from a source nobody was expecting. And Hannibal got a I got a lot of, and that's the one thing I, you know, he got a lot of pushback from black folks about even if this is true, why are you taking a black man down? Right. And the dam breaks. Uh, media wise and it starts taking off because woman after woman after woman starts coming forward well yeah so we sort of think it's the Hannibal thing the Hannibal thing got a lot of us talking about it but it wasn't until this uh, one of the Cosby accusers Barbara Bowman wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post where she was like I am one of these people and that's what broke the dam like that was when because a lot of women saw a lot of Cosby women who I who say they were raped by Bill Cosby were like what I thought I was the only one mm-hmm you know, and then so that really like and once she goes public and they see how she's treated, a lot of the other women start to come forward to sort of to show solidarity and also to make sure that it's like these are not isolated incidences. Yeah. What's really um, heartbreaking in this, too, is you really learn a lot. And when I, when I was giving you props earlier about there's so many layers in this, because I hope people get as a takeaway, take this away, too, is you really learn about the nature of this type of sexual assault, you know, where so many of the women felt like they said, I felt stupid. You know, I felt like I did something wrong because when, you know, by drugging these women and many of them were very young too, like 19 or 20 or in their early twenties, it was rare that you saw this happen in somebody in their thirties who might've known what was going on. So he, he took advantage of many women who were very vulnerable. Well, there's an aspect of this that it's, he's grooming younger women. Too. Yeah, exactly. You know, because he's relying on trust, the trust of his persona and all of that. Well, and many of them said the same types of things. Well, I mean, I, I didn't want to drink that, but since it was him, I figured, well, he must know what he's talking about, or I felt safe with that or whatever. So he's relying on things like safety and trust, you know, and all those things. And his public image. And his public image. And the way that it occurred in many of these women, not all of them, was they felt guilty afterwards, which is fascinating. And some of them felt like almost that they wanted to apologize to him that they passed out. Or that type of thing. I was like, oh, yep. man. I'm sorry I couldn't hold my yes. alcohol. I'm sorry that I, you know. And also he manipulated them. And it's like, when? Like they would wake up out of being, out of a stupor. And he's like, man, you got really drunk last yeah. night. And they'd be like, oh, I did? I'm sorry. Like it was like he sort of would manipulate them into the apology. And I think that that's the, 
but that's this is why the, the film is bigger than yes. Cosby. It's about how this country has created how this country has historically and presently responds to people who who say, have stories of sexual assault mm -hmm. and rape that we put the blame on them. Yeah. And that's why a lot of these women say because they, they see people say, how come you didn't tell anybody? Most of them told somebody, but that somebody was like, don't tell nobody else. And that's even if they told the cops, yeah. don't this, he's too powerful. And, and, and we all know that happens if the dude is just a dude at a bar, you will be told just basically, what were you wearing? Why were you there? Why did you do that? Why'd you talk to him? And why did you take the drink? It sort of, it, we, we hit in this a society, put the blame back on women when they've been sexually assaulted in a way that like we don't do with other crimes. Like if your house is broken into, well, why'd you have a house? You know, like, it's just like. Why you got that nice television that looks like it wants to be stolen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think we have to, that's, and that's bigger than Cosby. And that's why Cosby's able to get away with it for mm -hmm. so long, in my opinion, because I believe he did it, was that we have a whole system in place that if anybody, specifically a woman, has been raped or sexually assaulted, that she starts to tell herself not to tell anybody because she has seen how it goes for women who tell other people. And I want to be completely clear about this. I have been approached by women and told by women who are who, that they were assaulted by Bill Cosby, but they did, or that they know somebody was assaulted by Bill Cosby who didn't come forward because they saw what happened mm -hmm. to these other women. And they already have enough guilt they put on themselves already. Yep. And so to have people put that upon them also is just doubling down on it, you know? Yeah, and I think that terrible. there's, and we don't have, and we talk about this at the end a little bit, we don't have a society that knows how to deal with this currently. So, you know, if you, we, we have to create a society where if you have been a, a sexually assaulted or raped, that you feel like, I know where I can go to get healing and justice. Mm -hmm. And justice, as we say, isn't just, isn't necessarily putting somebody in prison. And we don't have a conception for what justice looks like, which might get us back to our defund the police conversation. But like, it's just we don't have a society. There are many countries around the world that do uh, rehabilitation in prison better than we do. I mean, to get into that, I don't know if there is justice for this type of thing for someone who this happened to them in like, say, 1970. And this guy is in his 80s now or whatever. It, can you really even get justice at this point. I don't think there's a mechanism for that. But that's where we put the, we included the stuff that we didn't even know we were going to do when we first pitched this about statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. That a lot of these women, mm -hmm. they're not still many of them. And if you see them and as you see them in the doc, aren't really caught up in the in the in the thing that happened to them in Cosby. They've sort of gone through this for a long time. Some of the most emotional moments are things other things in their lives that they that they feel emotional about that they are still caught up in. Mm -hmm. And so. They realized that whatever justice is in this country, there's no avenue for me because of the statute of limitations. But now let me become an activist for other for future victims of sexual assault and rape to make sure that the statute of limitations, which in some states, I think it was like four years mm -hmm. that we can expand the statute of limitations because the way society set up, you're encouraged not to tell anybody. And then when you do decide you're ready to come forward, you may have missed the statute of limitations. And there's and like for crimes like murder, there's no statute of limitations. Now, some people say, well, that's not fair that somebody could come 25 years later and say I was raped. And it, and the, the answer is they would still have to investigate it. You'd still have to have some burden of proof to pull to prove and So it's not like just because you claim it, 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 it means that person goes to jail. It would still be an investigation and yeah. you still have to prove it. Certain types of crimes are harder to prove as years go by where a hundred percent, but it is still a problem about like, yes. And that's why there are certain crimes that have statutes of limitations. So I think I'm sure. not, this is not about like, but it is about like, as our system is currently constructed. And I don't think even, People who feel like the system is broken feel like that's the that's the end all solution. It's just like mm -hmm. the system doesn't work now. We have to figure yeah. out ways. 
I, here's my, I would like to live in a world where people who've been sexually assaulted or raped feel like there's a place to go where they can get help and not, and not, and not feel like if I tell anybody I'm going to be in work, I'm going to be worse off than I am now, even though I've just been raped or sexually assaulted. And I want to make sure we're in a world where the person who rapes gets punished. Yeah. I think we're, I mean, we're, yeah, we're not, I'm not talking about, it's just about like, like I, I did an episode of United Shades of America in San Quentin prison. And I met a guy in there uh, named Rasan Thomas. It goes by New York. He's actually one of the co-hosts of the Ear Hustle podcast. He's and he's currently still an inmate in San Quentin Prison. He was convicted of second degree murder, I think in the '90s. But you know, long like he's been in prison for a long time. Second, murder's awful. Murder is awful. Full stop. Now, I'm not trying to say it's not a it's not a big deal. But he's been in San Quentin for all of his time. He's been in San Quentin. He's he's become a journalist. He's become a community leader. He has done rehabilitation work. He's done. He is connected to who he was back then and how he how he and how he made mistakes. And now the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, has just commuted his sentence so he can officially go for parole. And I've met this dude, hung out with him. He is real. He's been real. I believe he's been rehabilitated, but he basically did it himself. And San Quentin is a prison where you have the tools to do it yourself. They say most prisons just have Jesus and AA are the only tools of rehabilitation, but San Quentin has a lot more programs. So I believe there are ways. Or Muhammad. Yeah, they're Muhammad, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. A lot of uh, Islam conversion that goes on, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's just like there are ways that we can do a better job of all this. Like, let's say if Cosby had been found out about this in, in 1970, you know, that he mm -hmm. had done this type of thing, that he drugged a woman and raped her, and he went to prison for like five years or whatever it was. Do you think it would have changed things for him? You like? Do you think there would have been a shot for him to be a different person or something? I mean, I don't even know how to answer that myself. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. It depends how he comes out of prison. I don't. You know, I think that like like I said, I we have seen celebrities go to prison and not. I'm not saying for rape and come out and 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 sort of and not pick up where they left off, but still be a part of the still be a part of Hollywood. It becomes on who are you and what are you doing and, and how do you how do you go through the experience? The fact that he kept doing it for so long, I mean, it just keeps compounding itself in terms of its horribleness, too, and that he was in a culture that allowed him to get away with it too, and. Another interesting part of this was the people who worked on the Cosby show and all of that stuff was kind of hiding in plain sight in mm -hmm. some ways, you know, mm -hmm. which was also kind of fascinating. Yes. And I think that like, as we know, I mean, we, we work in this industry. If you see the star of your project surrounded by attractive women, you don't go, it doesn't feel like breaking news. And even if the star of your project is married, if you're offended by infidelity, <laughs> right, right. maybe you don't get into show business to connect it to like Penn state. If you're not a, a like the thing that happened to Penn State, a lot of people were not in positions of power. And so they felt like I just better look the other way because I don't want to lose my job. So I think there's a lot of that that happens in Hollywood, too. My, mm. my joke is that when they built Hollywood, they didn't start with like, where do we put the HR department? No, not at all. That's, you know, that was not. <laughs> yeah. They still try to figure that one out. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's like so even if you see something, there's no there's no mechanism in place for you to go out and go. I feel like something yeah. over there is weird, and I just want to let you know, and you can investigate it, and I, I'm submitting this anonymously so I don't lose my job. Yeah, that person will get punished in Hollywood, or has traditionally been punished. All of that's so fucked up. Uh, come on, I appreciate you being here, you know. Uh, I wish you so much luck with it. I think people find it really interesting. What do you hope people kind of take away from this? The conversation doesn't end with the doc. I think there's more, There's his, he has an over 50-year career in show business, and tied into that is, as we so. Over the course of that 50-year career, there are women who say he sexually assaulted mm -hmm. or raped them. 
And we can't, we couldn't cover all of that in the doc. So for me, when you watch the doc and you turn to the people you watched it with, or you go, you go find a community of people who watched it and continue the conversation and build from there. It's not about like, it's bigger than Cosby. It's about how to create a safer environment and an environment where rape and sexual assault is less likely to happen because there are structures in place to prevent it from happening. Yeah, that's great. And finally, uh, I read somewhere that you felt like you wanted to quit this at some point. Like you didn't know if you wanted to finish it. Why did you feel that way? I mean, I kind of feel like if somebody right now said the file's been deleted. (laughs) (laughs) You, you would be okay if this went away. I'm not, I mean, I'm being like, you know, somewhat facetious, but it's, it has it has been no it has been nowhere near as hard as this to be a survivor of sexual assault. I want to be that. That is true. But to know to, to be working on this for like three years and to know that some people are going to turn on it and turn on me. Who people who fa- think they're who are fans of mine now are going to walk away from me because I am a black man taking on a black man. Woo. And I think and I know that like that there is going to be you know I mean I think about I'm not gonna I don't believe I'll get it as bad like Dream Hampton is surviving R. Kelly they had to cl- they had to shut down screenings mm-hmm. so he was getting death threats mm-hmm. I don't think I'm gonna go through that because of misogyny is the works of how misogyny works so but uh and I and I'm laughing because it's just I think that's shitty that I probably won't go through that level but I think it's also like I just knew that like when the when this drops it's not a superhero movie everybody's not gonna be excited to see it well I'll wait for your next duck taking down the black man that'll be uh docu-series i can't wait for that one you'll just be interviewing yourself yeah Yeah, exactly yeah yeah we need to talk (laughs) about yeah yeah. we need to talk about cabal bell my wife would my wife would direct that one oh man well there you go that's a whole different story of course united states of america emmy award-winning show you can see that but we need to talk about cosby's on showtime good luck at sundance come out bell everybody thanks man thanks